Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Hausman, Assistant Professor of History at the University of St. Thomas and your host for today's interview. My guest today is Dr. Rebecca Schofield, Assistant Professor in the History Department at the University of Idaho. We'll be discussing her new book, Outriders, Rodeo at the Fringes of the American West, which came out with the University of Washington Press earlier this fall. Welcome to the New Books Network, Rebecca. Thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you. Um, why don't we begin by just having you talk a bit about yourself. Tell us about your background, how you became interested in history, and how you became a historian. Um, yeah, so I grew up in a pretty small town in Idaho, uh, sort of outside of, of Boise. And uh, growing up, I, I was raised on a, a very small cattle ranch, and I was a nerd. Um, <laughs> so I... I would often try to get out of cattle branding and things like that by hiding in the pickup uh, truck with a romance novel. And I loved historical romance novels. And, uh, you know, I think I I think I found my mom's hidden stash of them when I was 11. Um, So I definitely started at a young age and they were so great in a lot of ways because um, I would read, you know, I'd read a romance novel uh, set in some historical time. And then I would go, uh, you know, look up in encyclopedias, uh, what was actually happening at the time. And it sort of sparked this, this deep love of, of different cultures and um, different times for me. And uh, I very much wanted to get out of Idaho. Um, I, I loved my family and I love where I'm from. Uh, but I was, I was, I really wanted to go off and learn, and um, I was able to go to Willamette University, which is in Salem, Oregon. It's a small private liberal arts school, and and there I was exposed to a lot of new ideas and uh, new cultures, and I ended up studying abroad in Japan, and my BA in history from Willamette and then my MA uh, from Harvard University are both in Japanese studies. Um, And so I really uh, started pursuing these questions academically about cultural history uh, with a particular attentiveness to to gender. Um, And it was really when I I was sort of having this identity crisis in graduate school as a master's student about, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time (laughs) critiquing another country (laughs) for its Hmm. sexism and racism And I I kind of was thinking, you know, do I really want to pursue a a PhD uh, in Japanese history? Do I want to spend a good portion of my life uh, in Japan or traveling to Japan? Um, And I was actually in Tokyo doing research for my master's thesis on the acrylic nail industry in Tokyo um, and how a gender and race uh, figure into uh, those relationships between uh, sort of in the beauty industry. And I saw a uh, amazing, uh, shop 
uh, selling jean shorts and uh, flannel shirts and cowgirl boots to Japanese teenagers called rodeo clowns. Um, and that really threw me for a loop because I felt like, you know, I had fled Idaho. I had, I, uh, had fled sort of stock raising and those sorts of things. And I'm on the other side of the world. Uh, and here's the sort of cultural expression of Western identity, uh, you know, being marketed to <laughs> teenagers. And so that really shifted um, uh, my life. Uh, and I started uh, pursuing questions about uh, the performance and uh, creation of Western identity through things like uh, fashion and um, mechanical bull riding and those sorts of things. And I was very lucky to study with amazing uh, professors in my PhD program at, at Harvard in American Studies, uh, people uh, like Robin Bernstein, who is just a fantastic cultural historian, um, and looking at these questions of theater and performance uh, uh, within a historical context. Uh, so that was sort of my long journey from Idaho to Japan and the East Coast and then back to Idaho. Yeah, to try as you might to get out of Idaho. You ended <laughs> up right back there, right? Yeah, yeah. no, it's a very much a, the West really haunts you uh, <laughs> if you if you've grown up in it. And what got you interested in the topic of rodeo mm-hmm. in the American West specifically? Yeah, I think it was really that juxtaposition of being so far away um, from anything resembling rodeo and yet seeing these cultural markers uh, cropping up in my travels. Um, And so it was very interesting because, you know, I started looking at Western wear and other things. um, And, uh, you know, I remember sort of looking at rodeo with fresh eyes for the first time. I'd been to rodeos my whole life. I didn't participate because I value my body. (laughs) Uh, And I I was just not very adventurous as a small child. Um, So, you know, my brothers had mutton busted and and, um, had ridden sheep uh, and done things like that. And certainly growing up on a ranch, you just like climb on on animals uh, and hold on. Um, And so it had always been a part of my life, but it was really... Uh, a moment when I was in this this very different, privileged um, East Coast space that I was like, oh, rodeo's kind of weird. Like, that's weird. We should talk about that. Um, it was the first time I could get sort of a distance on it and look at it as a self-conscious performance of identity and one that people really need to commit to in terms of finances and and bodily suffering. Um, And so that it could be this place where we could talk about uh, identity construction um, in a sort of graspable way. I don't know if that's what I want to say. You know, so much as a as a historian, your stories depend on archives. And, uh, you know, there are performances of virality and Westernness and, and wilderness and all of these things all the time, all around us. But rodeo is so great because it has very discreet memberships. It has uh, PR packages where people detail all of their feelings about being a cowboy. Um, and so in terms of, of finding a research topic uh, that I could... Um, gain insight into why people 
uh, were thinking of themselves or framing themselves as cowboys or cowgirls, uh, rodeo seemed a really productive space to do that. Um, and, and especially looking at, at rodeos that don't happen um, in places uh, you would think they would. I feel as though a lot of the best research topics come out of those moments where a light goes over your head and you realize this thing that I've taken for granted for so long is actually very weird. Why does this strange thing exist? I I know that feeling very well. Yeah, absolutely. And and also for, for being at a place like Harvard where, you know, I would, I would have professors say things like, yeah, but people don't rodeo. Um, and, And that was just like mind blowing to me because you know, not everybody rodeo, certainly, um, but it was really indicative of, of you know, well, where I'm from, people do rodeo, lots yeah. of people rodeo. Yeah. Uh, before we get into the book and the specific arguments that you make and the story that you tell there, can you just give us a very brief sort of thumbnail version on the background and mm-hmm. history of rodeo? What is rodeo exactly? And where does this uh, performance and this this kind of physical art form, where does it come from? Yeah, so um, you know, rodeo really grew out of of rangeland competitions. Um, uh, you know, like I was saying, like when you live on a ranch, like people are going to climb on animals, right? Like it's like you have to you have to have some fun, and so um, in in terms of you know, you would have um, these big roundups where. Um, working cow hands would, would, uh, you know, gather up all the, the cattle and bring them together. And it was this, this big sort of festive moment, right. Where, uh, a lot of the hard work is done and you would just have these friendly competitions, roping competitions, uh, bronc riding, um, just to, to sort of, uh, blow off steam and, and show one's prowess. Um, but really, at the same time that these sort of unofficial, um, you know, games are happening, you also have a huge explosion in American culture in the late 19th century of other forms of entertainment. And rodeo starts to fit in really well with that. So, of course, you have the rise of Wild West shows um, and staged enactments of the West. Uh, but, but also things like vaudeville and circuses and early film so a lot of people who are participating in the early rodeo circuits are doing lots of different entertainments. Um, you know, uh, people like uh, Mamie Halfley, she dove her horse off a 50-foot platform at Coney Island. Um, and a lot of uh, these people would would ride on a rodeo circuit Um you know, act in a Wild West show and then head to Hollywood for a couple of months in the winter during the slow season to pick up uh, work as an extra and doing um, uh, stunt work with horses. Uh, So it was this really vibrant um, entertainment industry that that people... um, There there wasn't such a a notion of, of rodeo being its own hermetically sealed thing. Um, it really crossed over and overlapped with lots of different um, late 19th, early 20th century entertainments. Uh, that began to change, uh, you know, Wild West shows. A lot of people uh, sort of look to the, you know, around Buffalo Bill's death, um, uh, right around World War I, uh, as, as kind of the death knell for these staged enactments. Um, and there were still uh, Wild West shows happening, 
But there becomes this uh, shifting focus onto rodeo as a sport. And you see in, in the way people talk about it, uh, both uh, women who are participating and men, they're framing themselves more and more as uh, athletes and not as performers or, or um, actors. And, and a lot of people are really pushing back on the notion of that this is a show. No, this is a sport. Um, and because it's a very dangerous sport, lots of people die in it. Um, there's also an increasing emphasis in the 1920s into the 1930s on uh, uh, performer safety. So in 1936, uh, there's a big uh, Boston rodeo uh, strike that happens. And the cowboys, the rodeo cowboys, essentially refuse to perform uh, because of inconsistent payouts, lack of safety, uh, lack of standardization across um, rodeos, uh, both like nationally and globally. And so, you know, this would result in like lots of world champions uh, walking around, right? Like every every rodeo crowned a world champion in X, Y, or Z. And that was very frustrating to people who wanted to claim themselves as a world champion. Uh, so you have the Cowboys uh, Turtle Association emerge in uh, the sort of mid-1930s as a response to this. And it's a union, right? It's a union uh, that... that uh, uh, men are saying, we want uh, standardized regulations, we want standardized payouts. Um, if we are transporting ourselves and paying for ourselves to get to these events, we want to know that if we win, we're getting a fair payout. Um, but what also begins to happen in that that time period then is, is uh, an increasing amount of exclusion. So because the the Turtles Association, which will become the Professional Rodeo Cowboys Association or the PRCA, because they did not sanction women's events, no PRCA sanctioned um, rodeo was required to host women's bronc riding, uh, women's bull riding, any of those uh, events. And so you see women start to lose their place in mainstream rodeo. And this is is also um, coinciding with uh, eventually World War II and how expensive it was to have two strings of stock for women and for men to, to have fresh horses um, or, or bulls to ride. And so it's just easy uh, for a lot of rodeo companies to to cut women's events. And then also, of course, the solidification of Jim Crow and segregation um, over the early 20th century. So the PRCA has never banned uh, men or women of color from participating, but many places where uh, PRCA events were held did explicitly uh, have segregation rules. Um, and then also just by custom. So you see this sort of poly, um, you know, there was a very, um, uh, what do I want to say? It was the diversity of early rodeo, at least in some ways, recognized the diversity of the early cattle industry. And that really starts to fall away in the mid-century where you have this this kind of hourglass effect where it has shrunk down to being just uh, an image of, of white, straight um, men who are allowed to be rodeo cowboys. Um, and that professionalization has only continued to increase over the 20th century. 
um, and into the 21st century. Uh, so you you really have people approaching rodeo as a sport. You have um, uh, junior leagues forming like Little Bridges, high school rodeos. You have the collegiate circuit. And so uh, more and more, you know, by the 1980s, uh, very few of these professional rodeoers necessarily needed to to have ever worked um, on a stock ranch. Um, they just needed to have sort of the money and support to get the professionalized training uh, in order to make it into the arena. Especially in the early days, the history of rodeo that you just told and of the professionalization of rodeo as a sport seems like it follows a similar track to other professional sports mm-hmm. in the United States. Like uh, the story that you told reminded me to a certain extent of baseball or of mm-hmm. boxing or even something mm-hmm. like professional wrestling to a certain extent. We have Absolutely. all these sort of semi-professional leagues that are mm-hmm. slowly coalescing into one, again, similar to baseball and boxing as well. It's an interesting mm-hmm. story. Yeah. And especially how that that sort of, uh, you know, I think we we often look at that a formation of unions and protection of performers as as a sort of unilaterally good thing. But then who gets excluded um, because of that um, uh, sort of formal recognition mm-hmm. um, is really interesting. Who or what are exactly outriders? Because that term has a specific historical meaning, but then you repurpose it for mm-hmm. the book itself. And you use that term in a specific way in the story that you tell. So could you tell us both meanings? Yeah. So outriders historically were the cowboys who rode at the edges of the cattle drive. So you would have like a cowboy kind of in the front um, or the lead position that would, uh, you know, mark out the trail, would would be drawing the cattle on. You would have, you know, someone um, in the back kind of eating dust, uh, doing a lot of really terrible work like doctoring and, and sort of uh, prodding along the stragglers. And then you had the cowboys that were fanned out on the side. Um, who essentially kept the cattle moving in a sort of straight line, um, kept it going, making sure that it didn't, that the herd didn't disperse too broadly. Um, and so they really sort of formed the boundaries of the herd and, and made sure that uh, there was a, a progression happening uh, along the trail. Um, So I thought this might be a productive way to talk about the communities um, that I was focusing on um, and and how they existed in these sort of marginal places, but were still actively participating uh, in the progression of the idea of the cowboy. Um, Especially, I was very focused on how um, people who were not only uh, simply erased or left out of the straight white cowboy image that solidified over the 20th century, but people who also had this image weaponized against them. And I was trying to capture the way that these outriders, uh, you know, literally rode at the margins of the West and resisted certain aspects of cowboy mythology, but also in a lot of ways reified some of its central tenets and and used this um, sort of participation to argue for inclusion, uh, ultimately helping keep these dangerous practices alive. And so I really look at outriders just not something about uh, rodeo or Western identity, but how outriders really function in every part of American culture, uh, whether that's the military or the NFL, people who 
should have, um, you know, we would have thought divested from these um, practices or identities, actively, uh, uh, you know, reimagining themselves into the into the forward um, motion of keeping these these sort of beloved traditions alive. And the book takes the form, to a certain extent, of uh, several case studies mm-hmm. of people and of groups of people that you describe as exemplifying this concept of outriders in rodeo. So uh, I want to talk about each of those in turn. And okay. let's begin first with the story of Anna Matilda Winger, or as mm-hmm. she's better known by her pseudonym, uh, Tilly Baldwin, and what her story says about women in rodeo, particularly mm-hmm. in the beginning of the 20th century. Could you tell us yeah. about her and, and her story? Yeah. So like so many women before and after her, Anna Matilda Winger changed her name and she ran away with the rodeo. Uh, She had actually emigrated from Norway as a teenager and she worked in Brooklyn as a hairdresser. Uh, She visited Staten Island one day and she saw some cowgirls uh, trick riding. And this was one of those, you know, life-changing moments, or at least this is how she narrated it later in life. Uh, she she saw this performance and was just um, blown away by uh, what I think she called the, the apparent glamorousness of their lives, right? So she learns to ride. She changes her name to Tilly Baldwin, and she begins winning bronc championships all over the United States and Canada. So... Unlike today, where there it still persists in PRCA, um, the notion that women don't and never have rough stock, uh, so um, have never uh, ridden bulls or uh, broncs. In early rodeo, many women did. In fact, it wasn't until a woman, Bertha Blancet, actually almost won the all-around uh, cowboy title at Pendleton Rodeo. Uh, in the 1910s, that ladies events were created as a way to say like, oh, no, 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 no. But you guys can have this. Uh, <laughs> we can't have you upstaging us. Uh, so this is the the world that that uh, Tilly Baldwin is sort of entering into. And she actually beats Bertha Blancet at a at a L.A. rodeo. Uh, and so, you know, Tilly Baldwin is this fascinating character because uh, she's an immigrant in a time uh, where uh, nativism and anti-immigration sentiment is is extremely high in American culture. Um, people are desperately worried about um, uh, immigrants flooding the United States shores and uh, bringing different lifeways, languages with them, religions. Um, and she's operating in this sort of what is framed both then and now, as the ultimate American sport, um, as as an immigrant. And she's also doing this as a woman in a time when there is increasing pressure uh, by suffragists to, um, to, in some ways, clarify and, um, and change women's role in politics and societies uh, and society in America. Um, and so she's in this really fraught position. And um, unfortunately, I never found like a box of Tilly Baldwin's things. <laughs> That's always <laughs> the like, dream, right? I know, like with just like her diary and all of her <laughs> deepest thoughts on things. Um, so what I do is look at her mediated story and how news stories crop up about her all around the United States over about a 20 year period, um, talking 
about her in different ways. And the ways in which uh, specific journalists and uh, Tilly herself uh, narrated her place in the U.S. West. So at times, uh, she was she was simply referred to as uh, a real cowgirl from Oklahoma. Um, and other times, she was framed as an immigrant who had overcome the handicap of her birth to win her place in the West. And this was really important in a time, too, when uh, all of these cowgirls are participating in a very violent sport and in a sort of hyper-masculine space. And all of the cowgirls had to be very careful about how they narrated their place in that. And a lot of them did this through the language of authenticity, that they were ranch-born, that they were the daughters of these rugged mothers, and that uh, therefore, they weren't do they weren't stepping out of their place because this had always been their place in the West, and they were simply uh, showing that to um, Eastern audiences or global audiences. Uh, and this was obviously problematic because a lot of these women weren't ranch born; they were performers who had you know were wrestling for dimes at county fairs or or participating in other forms of of entertainment and athletics that were emerging at the time but this was a very convenient narrative that that fed into larger concerns about um race uh and a sort of you know uh, there's lots of eugenicists at the time worried about race suicide, that women weren't doing their duties um, by the nation, uh, by, you know, uh, foregoing politics and instead focusing on the home. These women could sort of use their position um, and their supposed authenticity to say, we are simply uh, doing what we were taught as young girls and what we are doing can actually strengthen the nation as a whole. Uh, we can um, reject the sort of nervous breakdowns of these uh, overly, uh, you know, over, overly civilized uh, Easterners and instead embrace our, our um, uh, frontier past. And so Tilly sort of navigates this very carefully uh, over time. And at one point, she actually um, says, well, I'm not a cowgirl. I've never been on a ranch in my life. And in so doing that, she sort of cheekily resists. You know, she can be a bronc rider. She can do all these things. But that doesn't mean she has to be a cowgirl. Um, she eventually moves back to Connecticut. And it's really interesting watching the way uh, the small Connecticut town really embraces her as this kind of mascot of the West. And they, they literally like trot out the same article about her about every 10 years for the rest of her life um, and sort of use her, um, you know, her 10 gallon hat and her lasso um, as, as these, um, the, uh, these, uh, what do I want to say? This proof that she had, fully Americanized and really overcome uh, her, her Norwegian birth. You also write in the book about prison rodeos and in a book on a topic that I'll admit having almost total ignorance about, this was especially a, a pretty fascinating and, and uh, revealing chapter for me. And if I can say so briefly, I thought it was a really good example and a pretty innovative example of how to incorporate uh, the history of incarceration into other histories mm. as well. Um, I really appreciated that element of it too. So 
Can you tell us a bit about the history of incarcerated men and women participating in rodeos? What did these events mean for both the performers and also for the spectators as well? Yeah. So, um, so first of all, all rodeos are kind of a triangulation between uh, the performers who go into it, the organizers who have, have structured it, and then the audiences. Um, and and uh, within prison rodeos especially, there are massive power imbalances within that triangulation. Uh, And really trying to access people's voices in this chapter was incredibly difficult uh, because the the, um, Texas Department of Corrections has total say over this history and what was was published about it. So uh, the Texas Prison Rodeo ran from 1931 until 1986. And there are prison rodeos uh, like that in Louisiana that continue to operate today and continue to use uh, this type of spectacle to, to earn money. So in, in Texas, the rodeo became the mechanism by which incarcerated people funded themselves all forms of recreation and education because there was no money set aside through state uh, allocations to do that. So it was really started, um, supposedly, um, as a way uh, for for um, uh, incarcerated people to have some fun, right? And this was supposed to be a rodeo that was just staged uh, for employees of the uh, of the um, of Huntington. The uh, what do I want to not Huntington? The Huntsville uh, uh, Correctional Institute. So. This, of course, drew many, many spectators in its first year. And the, the prison staff figured out we could really make money from this. Uh, by the 1950s, 100,000 people were attending the Texas Prison Rodeo every year. It was uh, every year in October. Every Sunday of October was a rodeo. And people would drive from all over to, to see this, in part um, you know, there was a a lot of different reasons people are coming, but for some people, they're coming to actually see their family members perform. This is a very uh, rare opportunity to uh, see a family member and to see them in a way that uh, is celebrating them and not at least not straightforwardly denigrating them, though we can get into that. So while there are at the same time that there are unions in mainstream rodeo forming to uh, ensure that that people are protected. Um, there are obviously no unions protecting incarcerated people. And the, the uh, prison officials really capitalize on that and use that, that reality to promote prison rodeo as the most uh, violent spectacle that you could uh, ever hope to see. Uh, and they call it, you know, the wildest show in the South um, and eventually, you know, the wildest show in the world. And it really was in a lot of ways. So uh, events that had been banned in other places like Mad Scrambles, uh, which are also called bust outs, uh, always kicked off the rodeo. So in a Mad Scramble, you have up to 10 riders on a variety of animals released into the arena at one time. So not only are you trying to get to avoid getting kicked in the face by your own animal, you're also trying to avoid getting gored or kicked in the face or trampled uh, by nine other animals. So there's incredibly dangerous. Um, now, 
Interestingly, you would think that the rodeo would become safer over time uh, and even in this um, incarcerated space. But what I found is that the the forms of violence just really shift in tone um, and and really focus more and more on the sort of desperation of inmates, that they will do anything for the small amount of money that the rodeo provides them, especially as Texas urbanizes and as the prison population starts to change over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Texas rodeo also, the uh, Texas prison rodeo also really exposes a lot of the racial aspects of, of the West, right? Um, I always ask my students, where does like, where's the West? And they're like, Denver. And I'm like, so you're going to leave out Texas? Like, we're actual, like, <laughs> vaquero culture, like, cowboy culture came out of. Um, like, Texas is really the sort of uh, epicenter in a lot of ways of these um, of these cowboy ideals. Uh, and yet it is also a very diverse state. It was a slave state. Um, it has huge um, uh, Hispanic and Latino populations. And what was so interesting about the prison rodeo is that it was one of the rare spaces where black cowboys could compete against white cowboys, um, though in front of segregated stands. Um, and the rodeo really stages these forms of plantation labor because Texas's prison system is based on plantation labor. You have all of these prison farms all over the state uh, that are heralded, right, as as places where um, bad men are being uh, uh, turned into good men via labor and via uh, agricultural and rangeland labor. And so the rodeo becomes this stage where prison officials can say, look at what great things we're doing um, and, and look at all of these uh, brave, heroic men. But in prison rodeo, there is also a level of of um, joy in the uh, sheer violence of it that you simply don't find in other places. Um, certainly uh, bad wrecks between, you know, a bull and a, a cowboy are, are always part of the show, um, but it is really celebrated to a level uh, of blood sport in the prison rodeo. Uh, and the ways in which um, these men's bodies are sacrificed just so the rest of the prison system can get a library or some baseball bats or some eyeglasses. Um, And as uh, incarcerated people themselves start protesting the Texas prison system and filing lawsuits demonstrating how incredibly exploitative and, and horrific the conditions on these prison farms are, then the rodeo kind of loses its ability uh, to celebrate itself. And it, it uh, eventually dies out um, in the 1980s because of, you know, financial malfeasance, uh, the, these lawsuits that um, uh, incarcerated people are, are bringing on their own behalf, and the loss of this uh, rhetorical um, notion that uh, the rodeo is saving um, these men through, uh, you know, rehabilitative pain. The story of black 
range labor has a long history of erasure in mm. narratives told uh, typically by white Americans. But you argue in the book that, in your words, black outriders were able to re-narrate their participation in the American West, including their stories as settlers and their relationships with Native people as well. Can you explain what you mean by this and tell the story of African-American rodeo more generally? Yeah. So rodeo has really been used uh, as a tool by many populations to argue for the belonging for their own belonging in this national narrative. Uh, but no group did this so explicitly as black rodeoers in the black power era. They were able to use their performances to gesture backwards um, and say, you know, we really belong here. So cowboys in the 19th century were obviously black, like working cowhands were obviously black, as well as native uh, Mexican working class white people. These were not good jobs, right? These were very difficult um, industrialized forms of range labor. Uh, and so in places like Texas that, that uh, you know, used to be a part of the Spanish and Mexican empires, used to be slave states, obviously working cowboys are going to be people of color. And early uh, rodeoers like Bill Pickett were central in the expansion of the sport. Um, you have early um, uh, uh, filmmakers uh, and, and uh, films like Harlem on the Range come out in the 1930s. That, that, that try to get at uh, the sort of uh, racial diversity of uh, the cattle industry and of the American West. But uh, once again, this really gets erased over time with the, with the sort of um, height of the Cold War solidification of, of the white um, cowboy. Uh, so by the 1960s, places like Bowley, Bowley was once the biggest all-Black community in America and is in Oklahoma, alongside um, other Black communities like in Oakland, California, they start actually using their Western performance to literally say, quote, you know, we helped settle the West. We deserve full citizenship because we were there. We helped nation build. And, uh, you know, this assertion is is really uh, fraught in places like Oklahoma because of those uh, deeply intertwined relationships with Native people. Uh, so Oklahoma in particular, right, uh, is, is where, uh, you know, the five uh, civilized tribes of the, the old Southwest are relocated along the Trail of Tears, right? So you have um, uh, people like the Creeks and the Cherokee who are bringing enslaved people uh, from, from now what is the American South to what is known as Indian territory. Uh, many of these tribes actually fight on the side of the Confederacy to uh, preserve uh, enslavement. Now, this is obviously very complicated as well because you have um, freed members of those families, you have Afro Creeks, um, who have their own sort of histories and identities, who are then having tense interactions in the late 19th century with new waves of Black settlers coming out of the South to Indian Territory to capitalize on uh, the dispossession of those Native tribes and to find uh, cheap land uh, where they're hoping they can sort of live in, in peace and plenty. 
And so you have these overlapping um, histories of Native and Black people uh, coming uh, to this one place over time. And yet all of that nuance and all of those um, uh, long histories get flattened out by uh, Jim Crow, by uh, the, the new laws that are put into place in what becomes Oklahoma State that ensure disenfranchisement across um, uh, the board for Black people, whether you are a newly settled uh, Black immigrant or whether you are an Afro-Creek. It doesn't matter, right? Your story no longer matters. You are simply um, uh, flattened out into one population that has been systematically disenfranchised. And so rodeo in places like Boli come away, become a way in the 1960s to um, argue for national remembering and national reckoning with that past to say, uh, these are people who did the exact same thing that white settlers did, and yet they are not celebrated, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and how do we, how, and how do these people of color, many of whom have, have mixed ancestry, um, as well, how do they negotiate that where at least native pl- people, of course, they, they, um, are completely politically disenfranchised, but they do have a narrative role in the imagined West. Whereas, uh, many, uh, uh African-American people simply feel forgotten. And so, Um, Over the course of the 20th century, as uh, African-American people are pushed out of mainstream rodeo, they form their own writing associations, they form their own uh, circuits, and you have these these events in places like Boli or in Oakland, uh, which establishes the annual Black Cowboy Parade uh, in uh, the 1970s to you know, you have these communities really celebrating Western performance and saying um, that this performance is is going to make Americans remember that we were here to value our past and and to thereby give us civil rights. Um, and especially in Boli, you see this as a as a way to say there is a, a continual hope that people will come back and reinvest. Uh, in Boli. And, um, and certainly people show up for the rodeo. The rodeo still happens uh, every year on Memorial Day and, and people arrive in droves for this, this uh, one event. But uh, overarchingly, you still see this out migration from rural communities that simply cannot provide the economic infrastructure uh, to places like Oakland uh, or, or larger cities in the West that uh, become uh, the sort of uh, place where people can bring their their heritage and celebrate it in new ways, um, but uh, really framed in this um, this uh, mixing together of civil rights, you know, integrationist with black power um, notions of of demanding um, recognition and respect for people's heritage and uh, their place, and so these these places function. Uh, very importantly for the expansion of all black um, uh, circuits like the Bill Pickett Invitational, the Cowboys of Color circuit uh, that uh, continue to emerge over the 1980s and into today. And that concept of re-narration is one that I found very useful as you described it in the book. And I liked how you showed also how, you know, a seemingly 
somewhat niche event like mm. rodeo, how it's related to these larger historical mm-hmm. trends and events that people will immediately think of when they think of American history. It was a, it was a, a interesting mm. chapter to read. And finally, in the book, you also talk about gay rodeo and you describe it as, and I'm putting this in quotes here, serious fun, by which you mean an event that is meant to both be taken seriously, of course, as a dangerous sport, but also as a somewhat lighthearted or at least a a kind of humorous critique of rodeo performances more generally. So can you tell us about Cowboy Chic, about camp and about the history of gay rodeo more generally? Uh, so gay rodeo uh, emerges at a very specific time in American history. Uh, so the first um, sort of explicitly gay rodeo, of course, there have always been gay cowboys. Um, uh, but the first rodeo event held um, uh, for gay rodeoers was in 1976 in Reno, Nevada, as an offshoot event uh, of the Imperial Court System, uh, which is a, a large network of um, of uh, a sort of uh, a charitable giving via like drag performances where somebody's crowned and then they work all year to to raise money for for local um, charities and uh, Phil Ragsdale in Reno decided to raise money uh, by hosting a gay rodeo. And, uh, you know, the first year they faced a lot of pushback from the community. It was very hard to find stock. It was very hard to find a place to to rent, um, but they did it and they, you know, they had 180 people and they had a very good time. And within a decade, they were having 10,000 people come to Reno every year for this event. And Joan Rivers was grand marshalling the parade. Um, and what really starts to happen is, is um, other places like Colorado and Texas, places um, that that have these sort of uh, thriving um, uh, gay communities that also feel like um, they, a lot of people want to reconnect with the rural lifeways that they were sort of banished from. Um, they want to start hosting their own gay rodeos. And so in 1985, uh, the International Gay Rodeo Association uh, forms, it you know, creates membership standards and, and uh, rules and regulations and, and all of these things. So... Um, What's so interesting is that really 1976, too, also kicks off the the urban cowboy craze. And that really helps drive membership into IGRA because there is a larger uh, cultural move towards uh, mechanical bull riding and Western wear and, you know, John Travolta's urban cowboy film um, and and the new right uh, with, you know, Reagan at the helm uh, is really uh, appropriating this imagery of cowboy masculinity as a way to say uh, we need to move beyond the effeminate um, 1960s where everybody had like feelings and, uh, you know, there were massive gains made by feminism and civil rights and get back to to hardline America. Um, and so a gay rodeo is really interesting because it, it sort of capitalizes on this outpouring of, of country music and Western wear and, and line dancing. Um, and it capitalizes in some ways on these dual masculinity crises that are happening both uh, in America at large, 
um, and wanting to have a sort of, you know, tougher stand on the Cold War and and a tougher stand on the economy um, alongside uh, a lot of gay men who um, are tired of the, the quote unquote assumed effeminacy of homosexuality. And so you see in, in the 1980s, the emergence of lots of hyper-masculine subcultures like bears and leathermen um, uh, and um, other groups of men who are tired of, of uh, them you know, being assumed to be quote unquote pansies because they're gay. And they really embrace these, these forms of hyper-masculinity. So uh, in the larger culture, right, you have uh, what I like to call play cowboys uh, like Ronald Reagan and John Wayne, who are accepted as, you know, the genuine article simply because they played cowboys on TV. Um, and what IGRA or uh, the International Gay Rodeo Association's membership does so well is they take the debates that in a lot of ways should have been obvious across American culture about who should belong. What does, what is, what is a real cowboy, you know, by the 1980s, what does that mean? Right. Um, And IGRA's membership makes it very explicit it, it sort of rips open this, this raw wound about authenticity and Western identity and actually has those hard conversations in part because they are, they have to, they are required to by the larger culture. Uh, but in a way that, that all of these, these sort of notions about gender um, and belonging uh, and rodeo happen or should have been happening in other places and simply are silenced and papered over. Um, so there are members of IGRA who, you know, think that it is too frivolous, that it is not focused enough on um, initially on uh, what rodeo, what quote unquote real rodeos looked like when they were growing up. Um, and they wanted a push towards um, rodeo as a traditional sport that exemplified uh, people's masculine prowess. And they really wanted it to be a space for men, to be men. Um, and some, you know, masculine presenting women are allowed to. <laughs> um, this is really made apparent, like, I think it's the first or second year of their rule book says, um, we're just going to use the pronoun he to mean everybody. And which is just mind bending right today. Um, and, and this doesn't stand very long. It's gone within like a year, right? Like obviously uh, the uh, rest of the, the participants are like, no, that's, we're not all he's. <laughs> uh, um, uh, and that, that that's actually very damaging in a lot of ways. Um, and, and so, you know, you have um, some people who are pushing this this uh, reinvestment in this kind of of um, traditional hypermasculinity, and then you have other people who are explicitly answering back, "No, that's not what we want to do." And oftentimes, these are the same people who, with you know, within one sentence, will say, "You know, uh, gay rodeo is completely traditional. It's uh, very serious. It's very dangerous. Oh, but also because we're gay, we have a lot of fun." and and that is very telling to me because 
like so many other spaces, uh, like so many of these other communities I'm looking at, uh, gay rodeoers really want to be accepted as legitimate, but then also acknowledged as somewhat better than the original uh, that they are pushing back on. And they, this community in particular uh, uses um, a concept, uh, Sarah Warner, uh, who's a, a performance uh, study scholar, uh, calls this gaiety. It is the explicit performance of joy by LGBTQ people in the face of adversity. Uh, and it is, it, it is a way for gay rodeoers uh, to assert that they are making some kind of contribution to um, and moving this culture, this sort of country Western culture forward. And so they do this through uh, primarily through three camp events, um, quote unquote camp events. So this is uh, where we get sticky because in a lot of ways, um, uh, things like the wild drag race where uh, you have a, someone who identifies as male and someone who identifies as female must be included on the team. And then you have a quote, a performer in drag. Um, but as somebody told me once, this isn't actual drag. This isn't, this isn't actually, uh, someone looking towards passing or something like that. It is, uh, quote, a guy in a wig and a dress. And so it's really just viewed as kind of funny. Um, it is very dangerous because essentially you're trying to have somebody like jump on the back of a steer, um, in like a sequined dress and heels, which is not easy, no matter what you're wearing. Uh, so a lot of people get hurt. I think it has the highest injury rate. Um, but this is, this is seen as, um, this kind of moment of gender bending, but it also in some ways, uh, reaffirms that femininity is external to the rodeo arena. Um, and so you have a, a tension about, you know, who really still belongs uh, in gay rodeo? Is it a space just for uh, masculine presenting people? Um, you know, I've, I've uh, definitely encountered um, some uh, pretty deep-seated transphobia uh, there and, and having this community sort of explicitly grapple with these questions in a very productive way that other people in Reagan's America simply weren't. Uh, they were letting all of these assumptions about who belongs uh, go unquestioned. And I, I wouldn't say the gay community or the gay rodeo community ever settles on like a single question, right? They are, are still... Um, often debating these things. Um, but I think the real radical potential of gay rodeo was that it really threatened to expose all cowboy performance as camp, right? As this overperformance of masculinity. And that's why people just found it so deeply threatening um, to their own identities. And what do you see as the next frontiers for rodeo as a uh, as a performance? Where is the sport headed in the 21st century and how is it changing today? Um, yeah, so, I mean, I think um, what's really interesting is the the the, the sort of uh, professionalization, the the money involved in rodeo only continues to expand um, even as 
fewer and fewer of these young people coming up would have been exposed uh, to to stock raising as children. Um, And so it it is um, continuing to sort of invest um, uh, in in this performance as a sport um, and one that comes with sponsorships and things like that. Now, uh, what I do see happening a lot is is rodeo is increasing, or American North American rodeo is really taking uh, the international stage very seriously. Uh, so you have uh, uh, circuits like the PBR, the Professional Bull Rider um, Association. They are they are um, very interested in crowning actual world champions, right? In mm-hmm. recruiting uh, people from places like Brazil and uh, Australia, other places that have deep histories of, of cattle ranching and, and um, the same sort of settlement patterns as North America um, and have really deep um, sort of herding traditions. So uh, you see a lot of different types of diversity because of that. You know, I went and saw a a PBR event in Worcester, Massachusetts, um, (laughs) which was so fascinating to me because um, a lot of the, the Cowboys were Brazilian um, and had a a very different performance of, of masculinity um, and also of, of faith because um, there is an increasing uh, uh, performance of, of religion at rodeos I've noticed over the last 20 years and, um, and how, uh, sort of Catholic populations are, are, um, uh, interacting with that on this sort of international stage. And they're really reaching these global audiences, particularly with, with, um, with new forms of, of, uh, I don't want to say new forms of television. That doesn't, but you know, you have like streaming services now that, that really can, yeah. um, it doesn't have to, to be scheduled on like ESPN anymore mm-hmm. uh, with people having access to that on global markets. Um, you know, they can access these sporting events uh, on a lot of different platforms, uh, which really um, uh, makes for a very interesting um, uh you know, global culture around um, what is no longer just Western identity, but still the performance of of sort of cowboy cultures. Um, I would also say that rodeo is going to have to deal like all professional uh, sporting events with CTE and mm-hmm. traumatic brain injuries. Um, a lot of the um, uh uh, sort of research that's coming out of rodeo injuries is pretty horrific. Um, and so the, the first um, bull rider uh, was diagnosed with CT after his death in 2017 and uh, head and injury rates among uh, professional rough stock riders is, are just astronomical, right? Like injury rates in general are like 13 times higher in professional rodeo than ice hockey. Um, and what a lot uh, where, you know, so a lot of the professional organizations are pressuring its uh, members to start wearing flak jackets and start wearing helmets but that is really only going to get you so far uh, when you're up against a you know 1,200 pound bull or 2,000 pound bull, and 
uh, that, that flak jacket, that helmet might save your life if you're lucky, but, um, it certainly won't save you from getting a concussion. And because cowboys are allowed to join multiple circuits, uh, all of which have different reporting mechanisms for concussions and different protocols, if they have any, uh, riders often ride concussed. Um, and there are reports of riders, you know, getting five concussions in a single year. Um, so I think as a younger generation comes up, There is going to be a question, uh, you know, whether it's ice hockey, whether it's football, whether it's rodeo of are these traditions, are these sports worth the health of our young people? And in a sport like rodeo that is so wrapped up in ideas Mm -hmm. of masculinity that I feel as though that's also an additional obstacle to getting Mm -hmm. people to do things like wear helmets or protect their bodies. Absolutely. And, and a lot of, of, of associations have, have talked about that, 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 so, uh, even in, in, um, uh, gay rodeo, right? Like you get a fine if your hat falls off in the arena. You like, oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, and so, so the idea of not having a hat, right. Uh, when yeah. you're, you're performing, um, is just seen as not cowboy. Um, and so uh, pushing beyond that to try to, and especially like rodeo is such a, a, a young person's game, right? This, mm-hmm. this is actually a big thing in gay rodeo right now where there is an aging population. Um, and so you have young people who like, they don't care about their health, right? Like they just want to win a hundred thousand dollars and have a good time. Um, You know, one of, one of my family members who's uh, been a a bullfighter rodeo clown for a long time once said, uh, he said, you know, the whole point of rodeo is, is to get on, get drunk, get laid. And that there is that sort of um, youthful, um, uh, you know, not caring about what the future holds, which is very difficult then uh, to be seeing people, uh, you know, in their 30s and 40s who are are living with um, uh, chronic uh, traumatic brain injuries um, and having to cope with those realities then, particularly because, you know, just because you, you won $100,000 that one time when you were 20, that hasn't really set you up with financial security for the rest of your life. As a means of summary, I like to uh, ask my guests uh, one one final question, which is, what is one takeaway that you hope readers come away from your book with? If someone is reflecting back on this book a year or so after they read it, what do you hope they remember about it? Well, I hope that it prompts a lot of questions, particularly about how people who have been marginalized interact with really problematic icons. And I hope that they look at this and all sorts of places around our culture because nothing is, is straightforward, right? Um, and nothing, uh, the sort of straightforward reappropriating um, um, icons comes with a lot of, of baggage and, and it comes with uh, a lot of wrestling on the part of these populations. And so I hope people, um, learn about rodeo, certainly, but uh, sort of beyond that can can take these types of questions and apply them all over our culture. And my last question, 
Um, and I know this might seem kind of silly since this book only came out like, uh, what, two months ago? <laughs> but nonetheless, I like to get a preview from my authors to see what they have coming down the road. So is there a project that you're beginning work on now? Do you have anything that you've been working on? Oh, of course. No. Well, you know, no rest for the wicked. Um, so first, you know, I am really happy to have been awarded a Whiting uh, Foundation of Public Engagement Fellowship. So that's providing $50,000 this year to help me train five students in oral history methodology and data processing that's helping me expand um, my Gay Rodeo oral history project um, and our curated web exhibit, The Voices of Gay Rodeo. Um, And so that's been fantastic because that's kind of the afterlife of this book um, and and finding ways to preserve this history uh, in, in, in ways that reach beyond the academy. Um, and, and really can engage different publics, particularly being at a land-grant institution in a rural state. I think it's important to have um, those stories and that LGBTQ representation in rural spaces. Um, and in terms of new research, I'm, I'm really focused on, um, right now I'm sort of delving uh, into 4-H and uh, in Texas, particularly, I want to write about the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo's Junior Market Steer Auction, which I attended in 2014. And I saw um, a steer uh, that was raised by a child, by like a, a 14-year-old, uh, sell for $400,000. Wow. Yeah. And so I'm very interested in the sort of investments in particular types of industrialized child labor uh, and how that is framed uh, within a sort of neoliberal um, educational structure of some students uh, and some people uh, being uh, deemed worthy to get an education uh, versus um, simply investing in education uh, for all um uh, children and uh, adults in America. Uh, so I'm starting to look on that. And then also uh, for my next book project, I really um, am starting to do research into sort of human and animal uh, relationships and the way they're gendered within 20th century fiction. Um, and so I'm interested in looking um, at, uh, you know, comparisons of, of Jane from Tarzan with Jane Goodall, for instance, and how we imagine white women's uh, interactions with apes um, or how uh, women writing dragons in science fiction relates to women, uh, you know, writing uh, horses and rodeo. And I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm increasingly interested. I feel like I wrote a book about rodeo that talks about animals, not at all. <laughs> uh, and But there was a lot of questions that sort of got going for me as I was writing this. And so I'm really interested in, in asking, yeah, questions about like, why do you... P- why do people want to date werewolves? And uh, why is any steer worth $400,000? <laughs> I immediately think of Disney movies and mm-hmm. how animals are gendered in very Absolutely. strange ways in, in all the films mm-hmm. that I watched growing up as well. Yeah. Those all sound like great projects. You have a lot yeah. going on right now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm very tired. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I'm excited to sort of uh, start this this next stage of research. It's really just about carving out the time to do it um, now that I'm no longer a grad student. Rebecca Schofield is an assistant professor of history at the University of Idaho. Her new book is Outriders, Rodeo and the Fringes of the American West, which just came out from the University of Washington Press. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Rebecca. Thank you. Thank you. 